0: Uh, good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming to today's event. How will government and politics be transformed by technology? I'm Gavin Freegard, Program Director here at the Institute for Government, where I lead our work on data and digital government. And I'm very much looking forward to talking to Jamie Siskind about this excellent book, Future Politics. Future politics. It's currently difficult to know what the future of politics will be at the end of the next news cycle, let alone the end of the week. Uh, But tonight's conversation looks beyond the next defection, the next legislative amendment or the next Brexit deadline to the fundamental changes that future technology could make to our politics and to government. This is one of those rare political discussions where the B word will not be Brexit but blockchain. Some housekeeping first. Um, If you want to use some current technology to share your thoughts on tonight's event, we're using the hashtag ifgdigital and we're live tweeting from at ifgevents. Those of you in the room can get onto the Wi-Fi using the details behind me. The network is ifgguest, the username is ifg, all lowercase, and the password is visitor, also all lowercase. We're live streaming this event, so hello to those of you watching us online. And that also serves as a reminder that today's event is on the record. Uh, Video and audio will be available afterwards. Advances in technology are daily transforming the way we live and how we interact with one another. Changes in how we gather, store, analyze and use data, whether government or big tech companies, are profoundly changing our politics and our society. But, and I quote, we are not yet ready, intellectually, philosophically, or morally, for the world we are creating. We aren't ready for our politics to be dominated by questions of digital control over our lives. We haven't adapted to a world where the digital is political. That, very broadly, is the argument made by Jamie in this book, Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech. Jamie is an author, speaker, and practicing barrister He's a past fellow of the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard and has previously worked in politics for Tony Blair, Ed Miliband and the late Senator Ted Kennedy. So Jamie's going to talk for about seven minutes or so about the book and how government and politics will be transformed by technology. We'll then carry on the conversation for a short while, and then we'll throw it open to questions from you in the audience. Uh, We'll wrap up at about 7pm, and you'd be very welcome to join us after that for drinks, nibbles, and book signing afterwards. Uh, You'll be able to find a copy on sale for the special discounted rate of £15 for one night only, so make sure you take advantage of it.
1: Uh, So without further ado, Jamie. Jamie. Well, Gavin, thank you, and thank you all for coming out on this cold evening to talk uh, about the future of politics. Um, I just want to start with a few stories to let you know where I'm going and where my thinking uh, comes from. I want you to first of all start by imagining that you're taking a drive in a self-driving car for the first time. And you are late and in a hurry, or perhaps it's an emergency and you need to get to the hospital. And you ask that vehicle to go over the speed limit uh, just for a moment as you might do if you were controlling it. But the vehicle refuses. In fact, it doesn't even go up to the legal speed limit. It stops at, say, 50 miles an hour because that's the rule that's been programmed into it. Or say you want to park that vehicle illegally just for a moment while you dash into the hospital on a double yellow line. Or say you want it to take you to somewhere that its GPS systems tell it would be trespassing, but the vehicle refuses to do so on all occasions. Now imagine a different example, in fact, a real life example, which is Amazon, uh, one of the biggest and most sophisticated tech companies in the world. For five years, Amazon used a machine learning recruitment system in order to uh, recruit people to work at the company. And we'll perhaps talk a little bit more about machine learning systems as the day goes on, but essentially what Amazon did was it gave this system data from the past data about who its most successful employees were and data about the characteristics and qualities of those employees and said scan the cvs of applicants in order to find the qualities which suggest in the past uh, that would make a successful uh, career at amazon but the difficulty was that for reasons which were not good reasons the previous 10 years at amazon had been a largely male dominated work culture and so when this machine learning system reached its conclusions, the conclusions were that actually the best predictor of being a successful employee at Amazon was being a man. Which meant that if your CV said the words women's football team rather than just football team or had the name of an all-girls school or all-women's university it would go to the bottom of the pile. Now that was a system that was in fact used by Amazon for some five years. Now I want you to ask yourself if you've ever done one of the following things. Have you ever streamed something, whether it's music or an episode of telly, uh, illegally online using an online uh, website that you shouldn't have used? Have you ever jumped on and off a bus without paying a fare? Have you ever paid someone cash in hand knowing that uh, tax wouldn't be paid on that money? And have you taken more than your fair share at a self-help buffet or self-help system in a restaurant? Uh, or in Nando's or the like. Three quarters of British people or thereabouts admit to doing one of these things. Um, I sometimes call them mini crimes, but they are in fact just crimes. Uh, And the reason most people have done them, and it's a bit like driving over the speed limit or parking on a double yellow, is that in a free society or a free-ish society, there is this hinterland at the edges of the law where you're allowed to get away with minor transgressions uh, without being punished every time, and certainly without being caught every time. But of course, in a world where digital rights management technology is so strong that only the greatest hackers can illegally stream an episode of Game of Thrones, your option to do that mini-crime is taken away, as it is w- when you're in a, a, a world of smart wallets and your fare is automatically deducted when you could jump on the bus. You can't pay someone cash-in-hand in a cashless economy And you can't take more than your fair share at the self-service station if the uh, distribution of whatever it is is regulated by face recognition technology. Um, If you go to the public facilities in Beijing's Temple of Heaven Park and try to use toilet paper there, you'll find that your helping there is in fact regulated by face recognition technology because they had a problem with people taking too much. Uh, That technology is becoming cheaper and cheaper. Final example. Uh, over the summer last year in, Brit- uh, last year in Britain, a system was developed which was said to be able to pass the exam to become a, royal, uh, a member of the Royal College of General Practitioners with 82% accuracy as against 71% of the average human successful candidate. Uh, this is a chat bot, so it's a system to which you can ask questions in natural language. <coughs> and it responds in natural language and this is a system which can uh, therefore answer medical diagnostic questions in English as well as or better than human doctors and I want you to imagine a world in which the participation of bots on, in online political discourse is not, lim- is not limited to the repetition of slogans like hashtag lock her up or hashtag uh, make America great again but systems that are are equal or are superior in political knowledge and rhetoric and wit, and what future there is for human beings in a world where discourse itself, deliberation, that aspect that sits at the heart of democracy, or at least has been perceived to since Athens, uh, is done better or done more extensively than digital systems than it is by us. What all of these stories have in common is that I say that they are matters of politics. Those who write the code, who write the rules, like with the self-driving car, have a form of power over us. They can get us to do things we wouldn't otherwise do and not to do things we would otherwise have done. Those who set the limits of what we can and can't do with their technologies, like uh, the face recognition technology um, or online platforms which dictate what can and cannot be said on their forums, They they set the limits of our our liberty, decreeing what may be done and what is forbidden. Chatbots colonizing online discourse affects democracy. And the algorithms that distribute jobs around society, 72% of human CVs are no longer read by human eyes, are dealing, I say, in questions of social justice, just like the algorithms that distribute health insurance, mortgages, loans or determine the length of your prison sentence or where policing resources are directed. Power, freedom, democracy and justice are not peripheral to politics. They are the heart of it. And I think we risk with our focus on the next news cycle rather than the next, even the next economic cycle, the next life cycle, failing to notice that we are in a time of change which could be as profound for the way that we live together as the agricultural revolution or the invention of script. And every time in human history that there has been a big change in the way that we process, store, and disseminate information, there have been big political changes as well. For example, it's not a coincidence that the very first human empires stretching over large territories arose very shortly after the invention of writing or or the earliest forms of writing. Because hitherto, there hadn't been the forms of information storage that were capable of sustaining a human bureaucracy, if to use an anachronistic term. Uh, it, It couldn't be done in a world of pure orality. So changes in the technologies of information and communication prompted political changes. I believe we might be living through such a time just now. And so what I try to do in the book is I take these concepts, power, freedom, democracy, and justice, and then ask, what do they mean in the past? What do they mean today? And crucially, what might they mean in the future? Henry Ford, uh, who brought the automobile to the mass market, used to say that when he asked people what they wanted, they would tell him that what they wanted was faster horses. And I think too much of our thinking about the future of politics is faster horses thinking. We imagine it will be like today, but just a little bit shinier, a little bit sleeker, and a little bit faster. But actually, we could be moving into a period that is as profoundly different from today's politics as the car was from the horse that preceded it. Uh, So that's the basic thesis of the book. Um, There are lots of alleyways and byways that it goes down in pursuit of that thesis. Uh, But the overall theme is that the digital is political, that the big question of the last century is no longer the big question of this century. In the last century, the question was, what should be done by the state and what should be left to the market and civil society. That was the fundamental political question of the 20th century. It divided left from right, and it divided the Eastern Hemisphere from the Western Hemisphere. In our time, I suggest, the key question will be this. To what extent should our lives be governed by powerful digital systems, and on what terms? And that requires analysis of where those systems are owned, where they are controlled, whether in the private or the public sector, and the rules and the regulations and the morals and the norms that govern them. And I don't think we're anywhere close to having a system that is as sophisticated intellectually, philosophically and morally as it is technically, which is why I wrote the book. Thank you very much.
0: Um, So how do we get society in general and I suppose politicians specifically beyond that faster horses thinking? I mean, how, how do we get people to grasp the enormity of the changes that you outline in the book?
1: Well, my my was to write a 500 page book that no one will read. Um, and of course, there are different ways of approaching it. I, I don't shrink from the fact that I think that what we need, what we're really talking about here is a generational change in perspective. And I sometimes think a little bit about climate change, I think about the way that we used to think about climate change, or global warming maybe as we called it, 20 or so years ago. And I think it was something perhaps which we were all peripherally, if not centrally, but in in, in wide society, peripherally aware of as a political issue. But it wasn't necessarily something that we took into account when we uh, chose our own behavior on a day-to-day basis, or indeed our political behavior, who we voted for and the like. And now I think it's fair to say that even though it's not accepted as conventional wisdom, uh, it is at least at the forefront of a lot of political debates in the developed world. And that's just something that's changed. And it can't be done by one person. It can't be done by one book. It can't be done by one politician. It has to, however, start with the recognition that this time is different, that digital technology is different from anything that's preceded it. And I don't find that a particularly difficult argument to make. We generate as much data now every two hours as we did from the dawn of time until 2003. And that rate is growing exponentially, such that by next year, there'll be 3 million books worth of data in the world for every human being on the planet. Artificial intelligence systems can now beat us at almost every game we've ever devised, in circumstances where even the top Software engineers 10 years ago would have said it was absurd that they could beat a human being at Go, let alone thrashing grandmasters in the manner the Google DeepMind's um, systems can now do. We uh, we are distributing technology into the fabric of the world around us in a way that it's never previously been. So the 1980s, well within the, the lifetime of many of us in this room, a computer was the size of a room, and if you wanted to program it, as uh, Professor Floridi says, you had to walk inside and use a screwdriver. For most of us, the key paradigm compute for computing has been the keyboard and the mouse and the screen that sits in front of us. In the last few years, maybe since about 2009, which I suppose is now 10 years ago, perhaps the principal paradigm has been what uh, is called the glass slab. This is the main way that we interact with digital technology. But in the future, it won't be. In the very near future, we'll have systems that are not just more capable, but that are integrated into the the fabric of the world around us, in our appliances and utilities and objects and architecture, in our public spaces in the form of smart cities, and in our private spaces in the form of smart homes. These are not, I say, insignificant changes. But as long as we learn to look at them as citizens rather than just as consumers, we can actually begin to see that really this, this time could be different and this could quite profoundly change the way that we live and in particular the way that we live together.
0: Mm-hmm. So the, you sort of suggested that the sort of political realm is quite different from the economic realm in some of this and I one of the big issues that we've seen just in the last few days is around Certain social media companies being in the news. I'm thinking of the um, digital culture, media, and sports select committee report yesterday, looking into how some of those companies sort of use data and where it fits into fake news. I mean, where do the, where do those sort of tech giants who are not state actors fit into this sort of picture?
1: Well, I think they're really important because, again, to use the faster horses analogy. We tend to think of politics today, or at least capital P politics, as revolving around places like parliament or legislatures or congresses, political parties, assemblies and the like. But to my mind, a lot of the real politics these days is taking place in the big tech companies. They are the ones who are taking decisions that shape our collective future, many of them in a more direct way than the politicians who seek to regulate and govern them. So. They're absolutely central to the future. And what's unusual about our time is that we have these private sector entities, these tech companies, that have acquired an extraordinary amount of power over us. And I, I believe we'll inqu- acquire more power if something doesn't change. And that power, I think, takes three forms. One is the form that I already described, which is the, the ability to write rules that the rest of us have to, have to follow, like the, uh, the self-driving car example. The second form of power they have is to gather data about us. The more, that it, the more that someone knows about you, the easier it is to get you to change your behavior. It's just a basic rule of psychology. It's the basis of all online advertising. It's increasingly the basis of all political advertising as well, which is why it said that Cambridge Analytica had, I think it was 5,000 data points for 200 million different Americans, allowing them to tailor their political message to each individual person, not just on a county-by-county basis which had previously been the holy grail, but on an individual basis such that the political ad you saw might be different from the political ad of the person who shares your bed with you. And uh, that relates to the third way in which tech companies increasingly have power, the ability to get us to do things we wouldn't otherwise do, which is by controlling our perception of the world. We, all of us, every one of us, rely on third parties to tell us about what's happening in the universe beyond our immediate perception. We don't have that information. And in the past, we relied on humans and journalists and the like, exclusively, and authors, and uh, more more recently television and radio presenters, to tell us what was happening out there. But increasingly, we rely on technologies to rank and sort what is important, to tell us what is true and false, right or wrong, Real and fake. And of course, we've seen how that can go wrong when the information that we're given is either highly partial or highly uh, dubious in terms of its factual um, content. But it also matters which slice of the world you are presented with. You could see a newsfeed that is entirely true, and I could see a newsfeed that's entirely true, and yet. Our perception of the world could just be entirely different based on those news feeds because they might just present different information based on what the algorithms underlying them perceive us to find interesting and attention-grabbing and so between those three abilities the ability to write rules the ability to gather data and the ability to control our perception those are all the three pillars of how political power has ever been exercised throughout human history and increasingly those powers are congregating in the hands of those who own and control digital technologies. And those technologies are becoming vastly more powerful and vastly more ubiquitous. So the, the tech firm as a political entity is an entirely new development in human affairs and one which, for which we barely have the language to describe it, which is why people are always like, oh, Google's a state or Google is like a state. Of course it's not a state or even like a state. The fact that they both wield power doesn't mean they're the same thing. Our concepts, our precision of our language hasn't yet evolved to describe these key but um, sometimes difficult differences. So I think they're massively important.
0: What should government do about that and some of the potential excesses which you, again, lay out in the book and you, you've discussed already this evening?
1: Well, uh, it's an understandable question to ask you know, the Institute of Government, what should government do? Uh, and the answer, I think, down the line is quite a lot. I think there will have to be structural reforms to prevent tech firms from acquiring too much power, of the kind that I just described. I think there will have to be transparency reforms which allow us or civic-minded individuals to understand what is happening inside tech firms that make decisions that are of political significance, whether to social justice or to democracy or to freedom. You know, that just chimes with the old Republican principle that you shouldn't live under powers that you don't understand and over which you have no control. Um, so down the line, we're going to have to devise legislation and regulation that meets those challenges. And Europe, I think, is the, the continent which is doing the best job of it so far. You know, the, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, affords us an enormous amount of more protection over the use of our data than our, our, our brothers and sisters in the United States, for instance, or, or elsewhere, and that's not insignificant. Uh, but my kind of bugbear is that, A, a lot of politicians don't properly understand the technologies, which means that the decisions they might make might be ill-informed, it might just be bad public policy, B, too many of the issues are politicized. so. The fact that, for instance, fake news and the manipulation of social media is so closely associated with people who object to the Brexit result or object to the, the election of Donald Trump is just inherently problematic. I'm not saying it's wrong, it's just problematic because it means that the likes of a Donald Trump or the likes of an ardent uh, Brexiteer are unlikely temperamentally to support legislation or regulation which changes that because they feel like it's an assault not just on a technology but on what they perceive to be a well-won victory. And C, I don't think we yet have, and this is why the book is actually a book about political theory, I don't think we yet have the concepts and the ideologies and the ideas and the level of sophistication in the debate which should precede government passing laws and regulation. Mm -hmm. Governments are going to charge in and regulate and legislate, and in some cases it will make it better and in some cases it will make it worse. And I do think we need to act quickly. But I think there's an enormous amount of intellectual legwork that needs to go in first where we set out the principles, the concepts and the ideas and the, the lines of debate and the lines of ideology so that every time we propose a new piece of regulation or law to regulate tech, we, we, we can immediately fit it within a conceptual framework that we understand. We have that, for instance, with economic policy or with education policy. You can say, Ah, uh, yes, that fits broadly with a socialist agenda, or yes, that fits broadly with a marketization agenda, but we don't even really have those terms when it comes to regulating the tech sector. And so I think that you know, there is a job for policy people, for academics, for lawyers t- 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 to generate that language. Mm. You talk in the book as well about you know, the sort of last few centuries of,
0: sort of Western liberal democracy. There's been a sort of demagification or disenchantment about the kind of spiritual ideas that perhaps dominated the sort of early modern Europe and the politics there. Mm-hmm. And it's become much more about rational observation. Now we seem to be heading back to the magic because even if you've got transparency around the data, transparency around the algorithms, as you said, some of this stuff is quite complex. Yeah. How, how do we tackle that?
1: I, I think that's a really good and, and, and difficult philosophical question. The, the, the context in which I raise it in the book is that Max Weber, the 19th century sociologist and political theorist, talked about, and there's no direct English translation, but the, as you say, the demagification of the world, which is that a lot of things human beings used to ascribe to powers and entities and forces beyond their control and beyond their comprehension. So if something couldn't be explained, you'd explain it by reference to the stars or the spirits or the gods. And at that point in human history, Weber observed, You know, we, we come, become pretty good as actually seeing the world as a more rational and scientific place where things could be explained by way of cause and effect. And it is certainly true that I think the world that we're moving into is one where it is very, very hard for most of us to understand the technologies that we uh, are going to be increasingly surrounded by. Whether How profound a change it is it depends on a number of factors. You see, For instance, many of us in the room wouldn't be able to describe how a calculator works. But we know what a calculator does, and we can test its working by putting in calculations to which we already know the answer to check that it is doing what it is supposed to do. <laughs> The difference between a calculator and, say, a machine learning algorithm is that the code inside the latter can be obscure to us, either because it's kept in a black box commercially, so we're not told what it is, but even if we were able to open the black box, we wouldn't be able to understand it and read it, like we can read the page of a book, uh, likewise the data that is fed into it. So there is this risk, I think, and in many ways it might be an unavoidable risk that what you have is a very small class of people in society who are actually capable at any given time of understanding and explaining a technology to a reasonable extent. Although, you know, I I did this, I I spent some time in Harvard and I went to see one of the machine learning engineers there, a really top professor, and he showed me a system which he developed where um, a machine was able to, so we had a screen in front of us and it was a picture of a road. Uh, an image of a road with a car driving down it, so there'd been a camera strapped to the top of a car. And just going back a bit, the human eye, uh, because of the delay that, and I'm not expert in this, but I'll explain to you as it was explained to me, because of the delay caused by light shining into our eyes and then being processed by the brain in terms of our vision, we predict the next microsecond of what we see before we see it, and then the brain corrects for it if what you actually see turns out not to be what you see, because otherwise you'd always have this lag in your vision. So you tried to create a machine learning system that replicated that. So what you had on the left side of the screen was the actual process of the car driving around the corner, and what you had on the right hand side of the screen was this machine learning system which had been trained to predict the next microsecond, and it was interesting comparing the two, and they were very, very, very similar. just like. Uh, The human brain is very, very good at predicting what you're about to see before you see it. The reason I tell that story is because I said to him, well, how does that work? And he said, you know what? I'm not entirely sure. (laughs) And that's just one application of a machine learning system. Now, you might say, well, actually, if you can't, that's all very well for that in the lab. But if you have a system like that that's, for instance, distributing things of social value around society an algorithm, or messing with the democratic process, you might say as a matter of principle, if it cannot be explained and it cannot be explained accurately, then it has no place in the public sphere, even if it might look as if it can do something better or more efficiently. I think that would be a justifiable principle of legal or political philosophy, that where a a decision-making entity cannot be justified or explained, uh, it should not be put to use.
0: Just one final question from me before I, I throw it over to the audience um, we've talked quite a lot about the sort of threats so uh, far that a lot of this yeah. technology poses, um, you also talk in the book about some of the opportunities, particularly for sort of coming up with a new forms of democracy that might help adapt to some of these problems and sort of face some of these problems. I wonder if you just want to outline some of that
1: um. Yeah, although when I tend to talk about the potential new forms of democracy that people tend to find them horrifying as well, so uh, I'm not sure if although Given the week we're having, I sort of feel like now more than ever, the argument holds weight that this is un- what we currently have is unlikely to be the final and best form of human self-government uh, if, if ever we were tempted to think that it was. Um, let's, let's just look at it this way. I've already talked about the, ch- the potential challenges that... Uh, the automation of deliberation could pose to the way that we talk about politics, having to interact with bots and the like. One of the things I think is going to emerge over the next few years, and this isn't a particularly new concept, is is, is demands for direct democracy. (coughs) Now, you're already hearing populist leaders asserting that actually the only truly democratic decision is one on which the people have voted directly. And we're not a million miles away technologically from a system in which, if we wanted... You could swipe left or swipe right on your phone five or ten times a day on matters of public policy in your local or national area, and I'm sure you can think of arguments in for and for and against such a system. I think the key point is that for the last couple of thousand years, it's not even a debate we've had to have, because advanced political societies are so big and complicated that it's never been possible to get all the people together to vote on every issue. That's why we have uh, representative democracies. But I think in the next few years that, that will no longer hold. I think it will be perfectly feasible if we wanted to, for all of us to be able to vote on everything all the time. And so we're going to have to do some hard thinking about how much democracy is too much democracy, how much democracy is the right amount. So that's stage one. Stage two, it would be strange, I think, in a world where there's three million books worth of information for every human being on the planet, to say that the system which best represents the people is one which relies on a tick in a box every five years or four years, choosing between four or five different options. It wouldn't surprise me if democratic theorists began to argue that actually a truly representative democracy is one which, as a matter of institutional uh, philosophy, takes into account the data that is actually out there about our lives. Now, obviously, governments use data when they make policy, but it's a kind of public policy choice. I think the next argument we'll have to wrestle with is whether not to do so is actually, in some sense, undemocratic or or, or illegitimate for some other reason. Then there's the question about what role artificial intelligence should play in the governance of human affairs. Now, we already trust AIs to diagnose our cancers, which they do for skin cancers and lung cancers, better than doctors. We trust them to trade stocks and shares on our behalf in the future, the near future, we'll trust them to drive us around and get us to places safely. It's not crazy to ask which areas of public policy might be uh, favorably affected by the introduction of automated systems. Now I also know that there are, and the book is about the problems as well as the opportunities, I obviously know there are problems with algorithms as well, just as there are problems with human officials. But whether it's the local water board or the local traffic system or whatever it is, building upwards to more profound levels of public policy, there might be a role role for non-human systems. At the rate that uh, processing power is currently developing, in the next few years, the average desktop-sized piece of computer, costing $1,000, will have the same amount of processing power as all of humanity combined. And it just seems to me that it would, be, it would be strange if our methods of public policy didn't change in response to that. Um, AI could be in politics in a number of different ways. You might have an AI in your pocket that advises you on how to vote. That would be a less, uh, a less direct way. Or you could have a, an AI in your pocket which votes on your behalf a thousand times a day uh, on issues that are communicated to it by some kind of central body and you tell it what your values are and it it gathers data about you and it knows what kind of life you live and it votes on your behalf. Or you could have a system of liquid democracy where you can delegate your vote electronically to someone or some algorithm that you trust on an issue better than your own judgment. So on matters relating to the NHS I'm going to let this consortium of doctors and nurses vote for me or I'm going to let this algorithm which um, aggregates the views of all doctors and nurses vote on my behalf um, because I trust them on their views on the NHS more than I trust my own views the 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 when you really start thinking about it and i did try to the actual opportunities and pitfalls are almost endless but i sometimes feel we don't think about this stuff at all even though it really is on our doorstep i think this is stuff that's within our lifetime because we are so caught up in the day-to-day fracas that is politics um i just think it would be good if we could do both to raise our eyes to the horizon The reason I I say that is because if you don't, then the decisions are made for you. And they're not made for you by a polity or through democratic means. They're made through the logic of the market. Because these products, these technologies are developed by private companies in pursuit of profit. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's no reason why technologies that develop according to the logic of capitalism would also be good for our public life and our public health. And I think we begin to see that with social media and the like. So that's why I think we need to apply our minds to these questions now, before the, the bus arrives, so that we're in a better position intellectually to make the right call when the time comes.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Uh, so let's take some questions from the audience. I'll take so two or three at a time. If you could wait for the microphone to arrive. Uh, tell us who you are, where you're from, and again, please do remember that we're on the record. So, I've got the lady up
2: here. I'll
0: take the gentleman in the front as well, and then the gentleman in the front row of the next section.
2: Um, Jamie, thank you very much for a very interesting um, uh, setting out of what your book covers, and I haven't read it. So, my name is Siobhan. Uh, I work for the Local Government Association, working with councils around the area of technology, digital, and cybersecurity as well. Um, The question I've got really is is maybe perhaps a little bit of a challenge, Um, and that is what you describe, though the technology perhaps gives us uh, the power to do things faster and more widespread, is this really any different from what the press barons were 100 years ago? in that they were able to influence and shape the ordinary citizen um, and uh, that affected our behaviour, be that you know, the call to war, be that the hatred of another nation, or be that the buying of particular items, um, be it for fashion or for, for our day-to-day lives. A- at the core, is it really that different?
0: Thank you. Um, I just want to pass the mic along there. Yeah.
3: Clive Soley, uh, former MP, now a House of Lords, so 40 years in politics, you see. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the practice of it, because, which is one of the things you're addressing. Uh, I often ask myself, how do I deal with the world that is coming as a politician, where I'm expected to talk to people Campaign on certain issues or whatever, and above all to pass laws. The first thing I'd say is I think talking about democracy without an underpinning of the rule of law is a serious mistake. And one of the answers in the way to your instant democracy bit is well, if you know 51% of people vote bring the young lady back from Syria and put her in prison for life and 49% vote no, what do you do? Well, the answer is you don't even allow a question like that to be put into effect because you use the rule of law. So the rule of law is an underpinning for democracy is important and I, mean, I I do use, quite I mean I set up the law to the blog, which is still active actually believe it or not, um, but I, I still can't engage with people in the way that I'm going to need to in unless we become (laughs) post-human. Your post-human bit is possible. Your pre-human bit is a real struggle. And I have to say, I do think democracy is in some trouble at the moment. Um, Universally, I don't think it's necessarily a disaster, but my god, it's
0: difficult. Thank you. And uh, the gentleman
4: there. Uh, Stefan Janajewski from the Department of Work and Pensions. It was really interesting listening, Um, the parallel going through mine was with Shoshana Zuboff's book on surveillance capitalism, where you're covering a lot of the same ground, but um, I think sound more optimistic than she does. Uh, I think part of her argument is that in, in some important ways, the battle has already been lost. You were touching on in your last answer to Gavin's question. And I guess the question therefore is, is this fundamentally a problem that politics can solve? So with all the challenges of decision making you alluded to, is there a fundamental political process that has a route through that gets it right? Or is this, as Zuoff implicitly and in some places explicitly argues, almost a Marxian analysis that the economic drive to surveillance capitalism can only be solved at the level of economic structure? Thank you. Well, thank you for these wonderful questions to
1: take. Um, Siobhan's question first, I take the point. The press barons had an extraordinary amount of power in the last century. And I think the political philosophy had a lot to say about that. Uh, I think there are three key differences with technology, digital technology. One is that the newspaper didn't watch you back. The radio didn't listen to you while you were listening to it. And so the difference with today's technologies that give us information is that they also take information from us. And that affects the choice of the information that they then feed back. Secondly, and related, if you listened to the radio at the same time that I listened to the radio or read the newspaper on the same day that I read the newspaper, we'd receive the same information. Not necessarily today. If you log on to Facebook to get your news and I log into Facebook to get my news, we might well get different news, even though it's the same platform. So in that sense, a news platform like Facebook is not the same as a news platform like the Times. Um, The third, I would say, is that in the 20th century, at least, by and large, you knew what you were getting. So if you pick up a copy of the Mirror or you pick up a copy of the Telegraph, you, if you were uh, interested in such matters, would be able to know the likely slant of the content of the material that you picked up but it's very hard for us when we digest information that's presented to us by digital systems to know if what we're being presented with is true if not why it's not true if it's partial the respects in which it's partial and why and the system is much more opaque partly because it's inconsistent and partly because it's different for every person so because because media now watches us back because it customizes itself according to what it thinks we want, and because thirdly, it doesn't tell us how it does it, I think it is different, the nature of the power, uh, from what the press barons wielded in the past. Conceptually, though, some of the concepts we will inherit from that world are very useful ideas about breaking up information monopolies and the like. But I do think we'll need to upgrade our ideas based on the differences with digital tech. I think your point about the rule of law is really important. And it ties into a sense that I have that a lot of what we like about democracy is actually what we like about liberal democracy. So in in ancient Athens, if the majority voted for you to die, off with your head. And that's what Socrates discovered. If the the majority voted for you to be ostracized, banished from the city for a period of, I think, five years, that was it. You were gone. In the last couple of hundred years, we've developed systems which you call, I think rightly, the rule of law, which actually, what they do is they place limits and fetters on dem- democracy. So for instance, everyone in this room has human rights, such that, which are enshrined in law, such that if the crowd is baying for your blood, even 99% of the people are baying for your blood, that right p- protects you from being ostracized or being executed. And I think it all boils, and these are these are, I think, subtle political distinctions that we haven't had to wrestle with in a while. But really, the last 200 years or so of democracy has been about trying to work out how much democracy is the right amount of democracy. When it was only very limited suffrage, we wanted to extend that. Uh, But there have also been decisions in recent years which limit the amount of democracy. For example, taking some uh, public policy decisions, like decisions that are taken by the Bank of England out of democratic oversight altogether. So I think we'll have to apply the same arguments to a world of sophisticated technology. How much democracy is the right amount of democracy? And what limits should we place on it? The difficulty that I struggle with is that I don't think that the populist mind, which is often also an authoritarian mind, is prepared to engage with the question of how much democracy is the right amount of democracy. The argument runs, if the people will it, so be it. But I actually think we can be more sophisticated than that with our politics. But it does take a bit of, a bit of doing. Um, I haven't read Professor Zuboff's book yet, uh, and so I'm not going to engage with her arguments directly. I think, however, having looked at the title, it is an indicator of the two different approaches that we have. She writes about surveillance capitalism, And from what I know of her work, she rightly identifies that the technological patterns and norms that are developing are developing according to market logic. These technologies are coming out of the private sector, and they're being developed according to the whims and wills of those in the private sector who want to profit from them. My whole effort is to stop us looking at them as a purely economic phenomenon, to look at them as citizens rather than as consumers. And to say that actually in the past we haven't just been satisfied with things that the market burps up to leave them as they are and accept that that is the ineluctable logic of the way that things proceed. So if you're a massive polluter, we slap taxes and regulations on you. Uh, and the same logic could a- could apply to technologies. If we decide that surveillance capitalism is a form of economic organisation that we do not like, then it. To answer your question, it can only be politics that deals with it. Do I think we can deal with it? I think we have our work cut out. Because I don't think most of, most of us really even recognize there's a problem yet. And so when people ask me, as they often do, you know, is this a problem that we can be fixed? Can be fixed? I say, ask me in five or ten years' time, because right, when, right now we're not even on the playing field. We're not even really trying to engage with these issues. Where's the government department? And and I don't just mean little think tanks here and there around Whitehall. I mean, where is the cabinet-level minister in this country who is dealing with this on a day-to-day basis and reporting to the prime minister? And this is one of the most advanced democracies in the world. And in many respects, we're much better than a lot of our peers. So uh, it is a job for politics and only politics, only collective action through the legislative and democratic process (coughs) can protect freedom and justice and democracy itself, and can prevent power from becoming too concentrated in places where it shouldn't be. So that's why I call my book Future Politics. We have to recognize that it's political. Thanks.
0: Um, Let's take another round. If we keep it short, we might be able to squeeze another round in as well. Um, I'll go with the lady in the front row here, uh, the gentleman at the back, and then one of the two gentlemen. there. I'll come back to the other one of you in short while.
5: Um, Thank you for the talk, it was really interesting. My name's Helena, I work for Save the Children. Um, We've been kind of starting to roll out new technologies, probably nothing on the scale you're talking about today, but fairly primitive forms of new technologies. And one of the things we found with that is the unintended gender consequences of doing that. So to give a very quick example, when we start transferring cash transfers through mobile money rather than through physical cash, Often the cash is going to men, it's being held in the hands of men. Whereas in the past, maybe women would have kept some of that cash back, been able to hide some in the house. We're mostly distributing money to men rather than women before. When you, you touched on the gendered aspects of the kind of Amazon mm. algorithm, when you apply it to government and politics, is there, what's the kind of data and stats on how gendered our consumption of this new technology is? So percentage of women that are holding smartphones, our consumption of our news feeds, how gendered is that, the fact that things are being targeted at us by gender, what's the implications for government and politics of the gendered nature of, of how that tech is working? Thanks.
6: Uh, hi, thanks for your talk. Um, it was really, really interesting. So I've got a question about the evolution of politics in the face of these new challenges. So. You're talking a lot about how politics might change and how we can have new decision-making facilities and systems in the future. But to take two examples that you would hope we would be hopeful, the US and the UK, we already have a system where in the Senate, Rhode Island and California have the same voting weight. In the UK, the DUP who have a constituency of 230,000 voters have 10 times the voting power. of The Greens who have a million and a half and a million times more than UKIP who have two million and a half voters. So given that our political systems in some respects haven't even faced up to the social changes of the 20th century, and in some cases the 19th century, what hope is there that we will have like, effective constitutional reform to meet the challenges of the 21st? Thank you.
0: And i tell you what, if you keep them really sure we can get both of you in in that row. <coughs> um.
7: Thanks for your talk. Um, so I I once went to a talk by um, the CEO of a Silicon Valley company, and he suggested that the um, Facebook or Google or large tech companies should have a seat at the UN Security Council, and I thought that was ridiculous. But then, as tech companies take on more and more of the responsibilities um, that are traditionally taken on by um, the state or by public bodies, um, so providing care or taking over um, parts of the infrastructure of cities, like in Toronto, um, how much of a danger does that pose to people's perception of the legitimacy of states in terms of their willingness to pay things like taxes? And then how much could that influence potentially vulnerable people who don't have access to those things that are now being provided by private,
6: large um, tech companies? Thanks. Hi, uh, Tom Storanger from Department for Business. Um, I really recently read Max Tegmark's book, Life 3.0. I don't know if you've read that one, Mm. but it's a a really positive outlook on AI. Um, One of the things that he goes into is the fact that AI is only limited by the laws of physics and can expand at a rate of, like, hours. Um, And you said in here that, well, I know that legislation only develops in weeks, months, and I mean, if you look at a whole political system like generations, how can legislation stand up to the challenge of AI when it takes hours to grow rather than generations?
0: Thank
1: you. Again, these are our, our really great questions. Um, Helen, gender consequences. One of the things that's really interesting about technologies is that they, as you say, they throw up or they throw into relief injustices that already exist in the world, which perhaps we weren't even consciously aware of. As you were speaking, it reminded me of a a, a system that was developed recently, a machine learning system that was given lots of human language to digest, and it was asked to solve simple word problems. So uh, father is to son as mother is to, and it would answer daughter. But if you asked it man is to surgeon as woman is to it would reply nurse uh, and if you asked it man is uh, architect as woman is to it would reply interior designer and the reason that that system did that was not because the people who wrote the code were misogynists it was because there are actual deep structural inequalities or, or un- injustices in the way that human beings use language and those were shown in the system that that was developed for an entirely different purpose. Another another similar example is Google's autocomplete system. Um, I haven't tried it with with gender. But if you type in, why do Jews, it finishes with have big noses. And the reason it does that is not because Google is anti-Semitic. It's because that is a question that lots of people have asked when they began their question with the words, why do Jews? And so I imagine if you typed in, why do women, you'd get some disobliging um, things there as well. So to answer, or, or rather not to answer your question, I don't have at my fingertips statistics about technology usage among women and men and other genders and how it, and how it, uh, and how it is distributed around the world. What I do know is that technologies themselves, once those inequalities have been identified, can and should be engineered to make the world less unjust rather than simply replicating and enhancing the injustices that already exist in the world. So when I give the Google example recently, a Google engineer in the audience said, well, you know, that's, that, uh, that's just a neutral system. And, and I said, well, neutrality is one principle of justice, but neutrality isn't always the best principle of justice. So for instance, if you believe in positive discrimination, neutrality is the opposite of justice in that circumstance. You actually believe that you should weight something in favor of a particular group who's who's been disadvantaged in the past. So we need to have a more sophisticated view about the the neutrality of certain algorithms so that, they don't, so that we don't end up simply replicating injustices that already exist in the world. Another good example is Airbnb. If you're a person of color, you're 16% less likely to have your Airbnb requests accepted. By, and that's across the board, not just by individual uh, landowners, uh, property owners, but by the big institutional ones that make money from renting out their properties too. Now, Airbnb say that's a neutral algorithm. I say that algorithm should be engineered so as to counter that uh, effect so that the world is more just once that algorithm has been applied than it was when it started. This is what I mean when I say that, like it or not, software engineers are increasingly social engineers. But once you have a clear idea in your mind of your principles of social justice, you shouldn't just accept that technology is going to exacerbate them. Uh, what hope do we have given we haven't do- adapted to the problems of the 19th and 20th century? It's something that keeps me up at night and I don't, I don't really have an answer to you. I guess the only thing I would say is that some problems that arise quickly are dealt with quickly. Other problems that arise over hundreds of years are dealt with slowly. We need to identify what the magic source is to put this on the agenda uh, so that it's dealt with swiftly. We haven't been that successful with climate change in the developed world. I guess probably because it builds up slowly over time. And that is just really difficult. My own little contribution is that I go around and rant about it, but each of us has to ask of ourselves and ask of our political leaders whether they are truly engaging with the big public policy questions uh, of our time. Um, The Security Council thing, to me, is so interesting because it's a great example of Silicon Valley guys who have never studied political philosophy grabbing the wrong end of the stick and then whacking themselves around the face with it. If your company has acquired the powers and responsibilities that are like those of a state, so it can affect the democratic process, it can affect the distribution of goods, it can determine the scope of your liberty, political philosophy's answer to that is not that you should be given more power by giving a, being given a seat at the United Nations. It's that that power should be subject to oversight and to transparency so that the people who are governed by that power have a say in its usage. That's Western political philosophy in a sentence. And it's a big problem that these guys who are re, and they are mostly guys, who are rebuilding the world do so with a understanding of political obligation and responsibility that is often much less sophisticated than their technical, technical understanding. And I do criticize them, but of course I also criticize Politicians and the like for their lack of technical understanding as well. So What I think is most likely to damage people's perception of the state is if the state itself it fails to deal with these Challenges to the supremacy of its power. I think if you live in Burma or Myanmar uh, And Facebook is really the only is, is it really the only source of the internet as The only source of online news. It's very hard for the state to muscle in on that and in a sense, you're starting at the wrong end when you ask, how can the state be more legitimate? Well, the state is plainly failing to provide the infrastructure that that Facebook is providing. And so, in a sense, Facebook has a greater degree of legitimacy than the the state in that instance, albeit that, as I say, it should be subject to the scrutiny and oversight that a state is subject subject to. Um, But this battle between states and tech firms, to me, is going to be one of the great defining debates of the, the next century. And there's a spectrum. On the one end, you've got the full China, where the interests of the state and of the tech firms are almost entirely aligned, and the state is able to co-opt the power of technology for its own ends. Uh, on the other end, you have things like crypto companies or Apple refusing to give the password to the iPhone of the San Bernardino terrorist, uh, where you've got state firms against, so you've got tech firms against the state, butting up against each other. In the middle, you have firms like the firms in America whose job it is to gather data. Um, so, f- so it's unconstitutional for the, Amer- for the US government to engage in mass surveillance of populations. It's not unconstitutional for the US government to buy that information from private sector entities that do it. So there are whole companies whose job it is to, to gather together data about people and package it and sell it to the US government. So there you have something in the middle where there's a sort of commercial pact between the state and the tech firm. This spectrum is something that I think needs greater attention, and we need to decide where best tech firms should sit on it. My preference is for somewhere around here. I think there should be a healthy tension between tech firms and the state. Neither should be in the pocket of the other. Um, And the final question was about, I think, the speed of technology. So technology moves really quickly. AI, in particular, can have a great leap forward in the course of an hour, and how can laws Catch up. Uh, it's a problem. It's not the only problem. There are other problems. Like most of the smartest tech people aren't working in the government. They're working for the tech firms and making a killing. They're not even working in universities anymore. You know, to go back to the Harvard experience, they really struggle to retain software uh, computer scientists because Google gives them a million quid a year to do whatever they like in its data labs, where they have access to much more powerful systems and much more plentiful data. So, a bit like financial services, although probably worse, there are a lot of challenges posed by technology which have developed so fast with the most sophisticated people and then you've got the old state plodding along behind, the state still has some advantages in that it ultimately does cool the shots. And tech firms should be aware that if they try simply to outrun the state, the state will just end up legislating, probably cause, blundering in, causing more harm than good. So there are lots of reasons why a tech firm should be incentivized or could be incentivized to cooperate with the state and improve its behavior anyway. In your particular example of the kind of exponential AI all of a sudden developing and taking over the world, which isn't, isn't what you said, but I'm sort of taking it to its logical conclusion, it's very hard to regulate for that. But what I think you can do, and what I tried to do in the book, is step back and say, what are the broad ch- changes that are taking place here? Technology is getting more capable, more and more data is being gathered, technology is becoming more ubiquitous. Then you can identify the public policy responses to those in, in principle and in practice, and then you've got laws and regulations that are based on the intellectual foundations laid. You can't cater for everything, but that's not really a reason to cater for nothing, which is what we, I think, too often do now.
0: I'm really sorry we're going to have to end it there, and particularly sorry to those of you who have questions. Do pick up a copy of the book afterwards, um, like 15 pounds, as I said earlier, so it's a bargain. And uh, if you enjoyed the event tonight, there's so much more um, to sort of dissect and and think about in in the book. Uh, Do join us for a drink and some nibbles afterwards. Thank you very much for coming along this evening and for some very well-informed questions. And finally, a huge thank you to Jamie for talking to us about his book this evening. Thank you very much.